that same place last week. That Jesus gives no words of commendation to the church at Sardis. And we asked the question last week, why is this? And then we received the answer because of their negligent attitudes toward the gospel, their continual compromise with the pagan word. And because of that, Sardis never dealt with persecution because they never dealt with the truth. You need to recognize this morning in your life that the truth always has a hard time to find an audience. The truth always has a hard time to find an audience. You see, they stopped preaching the gospel so they were no longer a threat to society. So Satan did not persecute them. Yet, when we see this church in Philadelphia, we see that Jesus utters no words of rebuke, no condemnation against them. He only has words of commendation to them. And why? Because they believed and they boasted in the gospel. You see, they kept the words of Christ. You see, even though they had little power, they refused to deny the name of the Lord before an unbelieving world. They, because they were faithful unto God, Jesus Christ promised them that he would deliver them from the hour of trial which was coming, and this is important, don't miss this, the hour of trial that's coming upon the whole world and to make them a pillar in the temple of God. Jesus is saying, I want to repay you for every ounce of faithfulness shown in this church, that the members of this church are true members of the visible church, true members of the invisible church. You need to recognize something in your life that you must maintain membership both in the visible church and the invisible church. But Pastor, what's the difference? Well, I'm so glad you asked. The biblical church has two parts. It's the visible and the invisible. The idea of the visible, visible church versus the invisible church is a natural understanding of the biblical doctrine of salvation. Here we see the visible church in Philadelphia. This is an expression of Christianity that everyone can see. This is where we gather. This is where we worship. This is where you hear the fervent prayers of the saints. This is where we fellowship. Churches that are seeking to become a pure church. We must always remember not everyone who attends the church or performs religious deeds or participates in worship is saved. The visible church includes unbelievers as well. We are always sheep among wolves. Now the invisible church is the true church. This is the church that only God can see. This is the church that God sees our very heart, our soul. This is a church that God recognizes in the members that have been forgiven for their sins past, present, and in the future. The invisible church is comprised of all the redeemed of the Lord, and let the redeemed of the Lord say so. The visible
individual church is the local church. That refers to one local congregation that gathers in a building. The invisible church encompasses every true church that belongs to Jesus Christ. So what are some of the differences? Well, the visible church, you can see it by or identified by, is religious traffic, uh, church buildings. You see ministers and clergy. You see ordinances and ceremonies. When someone says, I go to such and such church, they're referring to that visible church. They're identifying as a Christian. But even though they label themselves as a Christian, if they have not, had a spiritual transformation that has been initiated by the Spirit of God that is just a label and nothing else. It doesn't mean that they belong to the true invisible church. This is nominal Christianity. You know the word nominal means being such in name only. We see in 2 Timothy 4.10 that demons, it says that demons forsook Paul because he loved the world more and he had deserted him. You see demons is a lot like those in the church. They're in there for a while. They really never take part in the invisible church. When trials and tribulations come, they show their true colors and they leave the church. 1 John 2.19 says it this way. They went out from us, but they were not of us. But if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Nominal Christianity filled with church boards and cute sitters, filled with people who come to Bible study and never grow. They're Christians in name only, yet they bear no marking of the life of Christ. Yeah, they go to church functions. They self-identify as Christians. But it's a label, and they're lying to themselves. They're lying to the congregation. They're lying to the world, and most importantly, most dangerously, they're lying to the Holy God. They view their relationship with Christ primarily as a social construct, not as a spiritual connection and a covenant. As long as the church doesn't require anything of them, they're with the church. But when trial and tribulation and persecution and responsibility and accountability comes at their doorstep, they close the door. But those who are in the invisible church. They are redeemed. They are spiritually minded. They are in this world, but they are not of this world. Luke 17, 20-21 says this, The coming of the kingdom of God is not like something that can be observed. Nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is among you. The invisible church does not need physical accoutrements. You can take away the liturgy of the visible church and you will still have an invisible church. You can burn down the building of a visible church, but the church, the invisible church, will still.
still stand. You can take away the tax exemption from the visible church, but the invisible church will still give and provide for the things of God. It's great to have visible things, church buildings and hymnals and prayers and pews. But let's remember, all those things are temporary and they will pass away because this present form of the world is passing away. The invisible things of God will never pass away because they are as eternal as heaven. Luke 12, 33 says it this way. Sell your possessions and give it to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. You remember in John chapter 4, verse 20, the Samaritan woman speaking to Jesus said, You Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Here, the Samaritan woman is speaking of the physical church. But Jesus answers her by defining the invisible church. Look what he said. Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. A time is coming and has come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. God is a spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. Philippians says it this way. Philippians 2.13 For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good so we see this church this morning, the Church of Philadelphia. It's not a perfect church, but it is a pure church. I said the Church of Philadelphia is not a perfect church, but it's a pure church. It's a pure church because it represents the pure truth of God's word. It holds in membership those who are both in the visible and the invisible church. It keeps its word and his mind set on the things of God. It never denies his name. So really the question that we're going to ask over and over and over again this morning, are you a member of the church at Philadelphia? Let us pray. Dear Father, we know that you're coming back for a church without spotting, without blemish, without flaw. We know that the church in Philadelphia was not a perfect church, but it was indeed a pure church. A church with an open door. A church with little power that you protected. You protected them because they never denied your name. They made members who honored you here on earth and gave you glory. So this morning, oh Lord, Please accept our membership application into the invisible church where your son Jesus Christ is the pastor. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. We ask all of this in the matchless name of your son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ.
us children today. Amen. Amen. Whether you really recognize it or not, we are in a we're in a crossroads here when it comes to the Church of Jesus Christ. We're at a place where we're going to have to choose whether we're going to continue down the narrow path that few will find it, or if we're going to accept and gravitate to the wide path that leads to destruction. This morning, you need to be reminded once again what John had said earlier about this Jesus who walks among in the middle, in the midst of his church. Revelation 1, 12 and 14. John speaking. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on churches, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed in a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. This was the first vision that's recorded by John in this book. A book that includes seven letters to seven churches scattered throughout Asia Minor, to Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamon and Thyatira and Sardis and Laodicea. We find ourselves here in the sixth letter to the church of Philadelphia. And each time we see Jesus either commend or condemn churches for being faithful or unfaithful. Each time we see Jesus dealing with the struggles of that particular church and rebuking them when they find or when he finds serious shortcomings. We're seeing that some churches have lost their first love for Jesus and their first love for one another. There are other churches that are tolerating false teaching and allowing the influence of paganism in their midst. Jesus speaks to each church and tells them, commands them to repent, lest they will face immediate judgment. He ends with a promise and a proclamation saying, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Jesus knows all about us. He knows all about our struggles. He promises all of those that if they will overcome, Despite all the efforts of those who oppose them, all those who want to harm the church, that no weapon formed against them shall prosper. That promise does not say no weapon will ever be formed against you. It only says no weapon formed against you will be able to inflict on you their intended persecution. In each of these letters, Christ knows intimately about everything that is going on. But this morning we're dealing specifically with Philadelphia. Let's kind of take a quick glance at what Philadelphia was at that time. Here's a city that had experienced an incredible crisis. There had been a very large earthquake. And this earthquake happened around AD 17. And it completely demolished the town. Now, there was 
emperor there, Adamus II. Now his surname was Philadelphia. And out of his love and adoration from his brother Eumenius, he named this island Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Now Philadelphia became, after it was rebuilt, an important center of commerce and trade. It was like at a crossroad that brought Greek culture together throughout Syria and Persia and Asia Minor. It was a crossroads because goods could travel and from east to west. And also it had its own benefits. Now, because it had an earthquake there, it was on a fertile volcanic ground, and that, that was ground was good for being able to grow grapes uh, in a vineyard and also to produce fermented beverages. So it became well known for that, and that was what was able to make it prosper. Now, tell you about the earthquake. It was so severe, so widespread, that the Roman government, uh, I think the emperor's name was Tiberius, he took a suspension of the taxes that they would owe to Rome and then charge them. In fact, he loved the city so much, he gave from his own treasury money to rebuild the city. And because people were still very literate, about coming back to Philadelphia, even though they may have had a home and they had businesses there. Every day they would come in and by the end of business, they would leave and go out and sleep in another city because they were afraid that another earthquake would happen and that they would be buried under the building. Their leaders were so impressed with the generosity of Tiberius that they honored the city by renaming it for him. And this was called his new season. And then it was changed one more time his name because of the new emperor that came into power. But most importantly, when we look at verses 7 through 13 of chapter 3, we're going to see about a church that had been fixed and placed there by God and able to be faithful because they had been faithful to God and God undergirded all of their actions. The church of Philadelphia was a church with an open door. Look what happens here. Jesus said to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. When he opens, no one can shut and what he shuts, no one can When he talks about the fact that this angel, we know he's speaking to the pastor of the church. He does this in all of his opening salutations here. Christ is speaking to the fact that he is the one that walks through the midst. He is the one that knows everything about every church and about every person who belongs in the church. He is the one who is able to protect us because most of all, he is faithful. He is the one that is what? Holy and true. These are divine attributes. He's speaking about his claim to deity. Isaiah uses the word holy when he speaks of God. He uses the word holy when he speaks of God 20 times in the book of Isaiah. 
we're going to see a prophecy here come true in Isaiah 22, verse 22, because this is exactly what Jesus is speaking of here. Jesus is not only holy as God is holy, not only true as God is true, but he is the true Messiah to Israel. Now you have to remember there's a sizable synagogue in Philadelphia. And this synagogue is very actively opposing those Jews who are now moving into Christianity. They're moving because they recognize through God's spirit that Jesus Christ is the true Messiah, the one that they are looking for, that he's holy, that he's true, that he's come to save, and that he, Jesus, alone holds the key of David. Turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 through 18. Revelation chapter 1, 17 through 18. When I saw him, personal pronoun him refers to Jesus Christ. When I saw Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I live forever. And I have the keys of death and Hades. So we see here that Jesus is going to cite Isaiah 22, 22, which says, I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. When he opens, no one can shut, and when he shuts, no one can open. Amen. Now, this is clear that the fact that Jesus is the only one who holds the power over death and the grave. Jesus is the only one in whom salvation can be found, whom the only one who can forgive sin and has the power to erase guilt. It's all about Jesus. And when we look further into the 22nd chapter of Isaiah, we see that Eliakim, the son of Hilakiah, says these words, and I will clothe him with your robe, and I will bind your sash on him, and commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Here, Eliakim is seen as a type of the Messiah to come. He is given the key of David. He is given the royal role of authority. But it's all referring to Jesus Christ. And then the Jews, they felt and they claimed to have the authority to shut anyone out of the synagogue and open any synagogue doors for anyone they wanted to come in. So they felt because they were Jews and did not believe in Jesus, they could take the door and close it to any Jew that would be converted to Christianity. And they communicate that. But Jesus wants them to understand, no, no, no. I am the one that opens this door. I am the one who closes this door. You 
You see, we have to recognize, New Life, that anyone who's seeking, who's seeking Christ can come in this door. If we can't keep out the drug dealer, the prostitute, the criminal, we all have to remember that each and every one of us has a past and that Jesus is calling us to a new future. And if they come, we must let them in. 2 Corinthians 5 and 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creature. The old have passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, listen to me. If over time their behavior refuses to conform to the change of true salvation, we have to put them out again. But the door is still not closed if they repent from what they're doing. Only Christ can open and close the door. Jesus is not even his coming just as those who have been excommunicated. But he's given a word of warning to those Jews in Philadelphia that are persecuting Christians and claiming messianic authority. He wants them to know, no, I am the Messiah. The word Jesus means what? Anointed one, Messiah. I am giving you an open door that no one can shut. And if I shut it, no one can. He challenged him and he said, I know your words. I know exactly what I'm doing. Look at the first thing. I'm the ever-present Lord of this church. I know your deeds. I know your struggles. I know your situation. I know your strongholds. I know those of you who have been faithful and those of you who have been difficult in circumstances. But beyond all that, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I even know that you have closed me, yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. You see, the open door which cannot be shut is the door that depicts the entrance into the house of David. It's a reference to the messianic kingdom. It's a door that has been opened by Christ through his death, burial, and resurrection. And no one can shut it. Satan can't shut it. The beast can't shut it. You might think of the beast as later on as we go through Revelation. I'm speaking of the government. Those Jews cannot shut it. And because of the rock solid confession that they made of Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of the living God, Jesus proclaimed, Upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church of Philadelphia was an open door for all people, an open door to the messianic kingdom of Christ. But the question is whether you are a member of the church of Philadelphia. Because they were a church that had little power, but had a lasting purpose. Time and time again, it frustrates me when we talk about numbers. Because don't you recognize that little becomes much in the master's hand? He shows you clearly here. Look what he says in verse 3 through 8b. I know that you have the little power. 
and yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. Just stop right there. This is an amazing promise in this congregation. He says, in the eyes of other people, you might seem insignificant, but I'm telling you, you are of great significance. You have little strength in the views of others, but you have great power because you have not denied my name. And that's why I've given you an open door. And that's why I've kept your doors open, even when you were unfaithful to me. He said, despite the fierce opposition that you've dealt with the Jews living in this area, despite the false teachings, the false claims concerning me, you have still held the line and you are still worshiping me, preaching the gospel, and loving the people who are in your church. You have been a witness to those inside of the church, and you have been a witness to those outside of the church. And because you have done that, look what I'm going to do for you. I will make those who are the, of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but lie. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have done now this is an incredible, you know, this is one of those passages that you really need to know your Old Testament to understand the potency of this promise that Jesus is making. He's saying, from the council of Jambia, back in 80, probably 90, 90 AD, the Jews met to formalize the scriptures. And this was in a response to the spread of Christianity. They had this prayer that still exists today called the Twelfth Benediction for anyone who was in Judaism and converted to Christianity. Just listen to this. For apostates, let there be no hope. And the kingdom of insolence may as well uproot speedily in our days. And let Christians and the heretics perish in a moment. Let them be blotted out of the book of life, and let them not be written with the righteous. Blessed are thou, O God, who humbles the instant. Now in our time and charges of anti-Semitism, you know, if this is not anti-Semitism, this is historic. This was the prayer. This is what John is dealing with. This is what Jesus is dealing with from those who are converted over to him. That is what the members of the Church of Philadelphia had to deal with day in and day out. Jews and Christians were deeply divided and hostile with one another. The issue of this letter is that the Jews claimed authority to shut the Messianic kingdom to anyone who became a to put them out, to unsynagogue them, to excommunicate them. But Jesus says, no, you can't do that. For I'm the only guardian of the Messianic kingdom. Everything that you are doing, if you are doing this to my people, you are no longer a synagogue of God. You are a synagogue of Satan because you are persecuting the true people of God. Jesus will Ensnare those who hinder the gospel 
made them bow down before the same people they persecuted. Again, this passage is built upon your understanding of the Old Testament because you see time and time and time again in the Old Testament prophecies that speak to the fact that Gentiles will come and bow down to Israel, speaking of the fact of Israel serving the true and living God. But those prophecies were all answered when Christ created his church, which is largely made up of Gentiles. But now we see it as a promise to those who are leaving Judaism and becoming Christians. How does that look in our day and time? But sometimes we see large, impressive, influential congregations that boast about their many Christians. But they're housing many liars that are not true Christians and they're not a true church at all. They're only a repository for hell, keeping people in a holding pattern until the judgment. We talked about this last week, Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name. Do mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never do. Depart from me, workers of lawlessness. Is this what you want to hear on that great in the morning? Do you want to be on the right with the sheep? or on the left with the goats. You, you want to be able to hold in your heart the promise that Jesus makes to us in verse 10 of chapter 3 of Revelation. When to be able to hold on to that promise, you've got to be a member of the church of Philadelphia. Look what he said. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour trial that is coming on the whole world. Underline that. The whole world to try those who dwell on earth. Jesus made a promise here that I'm not, I'm going to protect you in the trial. I'm not going to keep you from the trial. Because you can trust me in tribulation. You can trust me in trouble, and I still have the power to keep you. You see, before you understand the promise, you've got to understand the presupposition. The presupposition here is that Jesus is the instrument of our protection. That Jesus is the one that works through our trial, and works through our tribulations, and works through our trouble. See, the problem with most of us in here, you don't want to go through anything. You want everything to go right every day. You want your best life now. And he said, I can keep you in spite of that. What does 1 Corinthians 10, 13 say? No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will provide the way of escape 
that you may be able to There is no temptation that overtakes you that is not common to man. So don't look at what someone's going through and say, well, they must not be doing right because I never will. I can never go through that. I've never done anything to get prevented for. He says, all temptation is common. And if I take my hand over of you, you could be Jerry Dollar. So never get ahead of yourself. It is only God that compels. It's only God who restrains you. And then he reminds you, God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. The problem is you think you know your ability. You didn't create you. You don't know what you can take or what you can go through until you go through it. And then it gets confusing for me. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure. Now, I was happy with escape. <laughs> because that makes sense, okay? It's going to be a temptation. I'm going to get away. I'm not going to have to do it. But that's not what it's saying. It's saying that but with the temptation, along with the temptation, he will provide a way of escape. So the only way to get through it is to go through it and to learn that I can keep you through it. And I think that is edified when he says, I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial that is going to be on the whole world. Don't buy into this deal that we're going to get raptured out of here and never have to deal with it. That's not what he said. He said, I'm going to protect you while this happening. You're going to be like a tree planted by the water that shall not be moved. How are you going to know the difference between you and those who and those who don't believe in God if you can't endure? How are you going to know whether their faith is counterfeit if you are not being preserved? If you can't persevere? No temptation, no enticement, no persuasion, no uh, momentarily. Uh, affliction that overtake us that's not just common to me. God is with us. Even when we face morally confusing situations, never think you have no option with you other than sinful. There will always be a morally right solution that will require you to disobey an immoral world and obey the moral laws of the when Jesus speaks of this hour of trial, it takes me back to John 17 in the high priestly prayer. Do you remember that? Jesus prays for believers who will remain in the world even after he leaves them to be with his Father in heaven. Jesus never promises to remove his people. He says, don't take them out of the world, but protect them in the world from the evil. Because these Christians have been faithfully preserved in the face of persecution, Jesus has proven that he can keep them, that he can protect them. And notice here, this kind of trial is relatively short. 
is one hour, and we contract it, but we get layers for the book. And it's three and a half years and 42 months, a thousand years. We understand that this is probably pointing to great turmoil that is, will happen as we come closer and closer to the return of Christ. But in any case, I would be remiss if I didn't point out the fact that this particular church, this church in Philadelphia, was faithful to the gospel down through the centuries. In fact, out of the seven churches that are in Revelation, there's only one church that is standing today, and that's the Church of Philadelphia. Right now, in a region that has been taken over by Islam, only the Church of Philadelphia still stands. They were not a perfect church, but they were a pure church, and God kept them as He had promised. This trial is going to be the trial that's coming upon us, the tribulation that's coming upon us. It's going to be universal. It's not going to be just localized to those who are unbelievers. But Jesus has promised to protect us and that the gates of hell will not prevail against us. John 17, 15. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. You can only protect them from the evil one if you are a member of the Church of the Bible. Look at Revelation chapter 3, verse 11 to 13. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crime. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. And my own new name, he who has an ear, let him hear. Here we have a promise directly from our Savior Jesus Christ. And in the words of that, those two great theologians, Sam and Dave, hold on, because I'm coming. He says, I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have, that no one might take your crown. He says, it's about you persevering and about my power to preserve you. He encourages us to hold on to the gospel that what? We have heard and believed. Faith comes by what? Hearing and hearing the word of God. He promises to take away the crown that was given to others in the unbelieving world and that we will be preserved in our crown. Now, he makes a promise here that ties back into their history, something that he knows that they would understand when he says, him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of God. Never again will he leave him. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the New Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. I will also write on him my new name. So the question is, what's a pillar, Pastor? A pillar is an upright shaft or structure stone or brick is used to do what? Support something. To support a building. He said that now I know you had a massive earthquake.
quick. I know you're untrustful of the environment. I know you sleep outside because you don't want to wake up in the morning and be buried under rubber. If because you have trusted me, I'm going to make you a pillar that holds up everything else. And you will never be forced to leave. He says, you'll never have to leave it. Think about that moment. He says you won't be sleeping outside in fear. You will have a permanent resident as a pillar in the heavenly temple of God. Back it up, Andy. Look at 1 Peter 2, 4 through 6. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 6. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like what? Living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a chosen day, cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. He says, because we have become pillars of faith, chosen vessels that can hold up the body of Christ and all of Christ's power and mind. Unlike earthly structures that can be destroyed, we will be a temple that cannot be shaken. There will be no need for us to flee from within or to sleep outside. For all who dwell in the temple are perfectly safe because of the one who owns the temple. Then he makes another promise. I'm going to give you the name of my father as well as the name of his heavenly city, the new Jerusalem that is coming down from heaven. I think it's important because the residents of Philadelphia recognize that they have changed their name for us. And this is the third and final time that they will be known as the New Jerusalem because it comes down from heaven. Revelation 24, rather 22 is this. 22 is this. Those in the New Jerusalem will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. So bearing God's name, we will live in a glorious heavenly city that has been named for God. This is a God who knows how to protect all of those who are here. Even in the midst of trials, in the midst of tribulation, in the midst of trouble, if you want to be kept, Christ can keep you. He promised us that he will protect us from the wrath and the wiles of Satan. We've seen in the last three weeks how many incredible incidents how can you not believe in a holy and true God when you have been protected from this out and out carnage in the last 30 days? Amen. You go to a grocery store? You get shot? You got children in school? They make a home? And you're not praising God for that? Because there's something that can go on with you. Here's a God that sees and knows, who recognizes how to preserve even in the hour 
This is a Jesus that establishes a church with an open door that is commanded to let you in because you can't clean yourself up outside of this venue. You have to come into this venue because then the Holy dry cleaner, the Holy Spirit can clean you and make you white as You cannot overcome on the outside. You can only overcome within because God works on the inside. We started out talking about the fact that we're at the crossroads. You need to wake up your life. You need to understand what is going on. You need to recognize what time it is. You need to make up in your mind whether you are continuing to be a member of an unbelieving world or whether you are going to take the time to surrender to an all-faithful, holy, trustworthy, loving God. You can continue trying to work out all of your problems and put together all of your schemes and work all the overtime that you can to supply for all your needs or you can trust with God that is able to bring all things to you if you're faithful and accountable unto him. You can decide whether you're going to do this all on your own or whether you're going to trust in the holy and precious invitation that comes each and every day. Come and suffer with me. Come and trust me. Cast your cares upon me for I care for invitation that rings in our hearts and rings in our ears, that he is a God that has the ability to save, redeem, restore, reform. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Dear Father, challenge us like never before in the week to come. Let us recognize that our only escape our only salvation, our only protection is in you. Yeah. Lord, let us not think that we can do this by our own. But we need you. Lord, we need you now more than ever. Wake us out of our slumber. Let us recognize that if we have any comfort, it's from you. Do we have anything that hasn't been given to us? All good and precious gifts come down from you from heaven. So Lord, give us a time to reflect this morning. And if we know that we are outside the scope of your protection, let us find an elder, let us find a deeper. But most of all, let us find you in a deeper more certain way than ever before. It is in the precious name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we have come. And all of us truly saved.